The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Last week, Pastor Stephen launched us into a new sermon series on the Psalms. And this morning's psalm is Psalm 19. If you want to turn there, you'll be ready to follow along. It's a psalm that David wrote to the choir master. Thank you for serving as a choir during that responsive antiphonal reading of Psalm 130. We're going to Psalm 19, where David wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, pours out speech. Night after night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Uh, Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord, perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I'll be blameless. And then I'll be innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My aim in this sermon is to refresh our appreciation for something that may from time to time become nearly invisible. At the end of this sermon, I want to give you five words to help you apply Psalm 19 in your life. Meanwhile, let me start with some bad news. The bad news is that the human race, that's us, has a triple problem. We're blind, we're deaf, and we're tasteless. We fail to see what's right in front of us. We don't hear the very thing that will make us wise. And we don't appreciate that which is most impressive. We have appetites for things that will destroy us instead of appetites for that which will delight us without regret. We're born without understanding, and as we develop, if something goes against our desires, we suppress the knowledge of it, become increasingly hardened over time. More on that later. Now, Psalm 19 teaches us that there are two main books, 
by which God reveals himself to the blind and the deaf and the tasteless. People like me. One is the book of nature. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the other is the book of scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We're going to observe three main parts to this psalm. In the first third of the psalm, God is author of the world. It's called general revelation. He reveals himself to everybody, saint and sinner, young and old, male and female, everybody. The second third of the psalm, he's author of the word, called special revelation. And in the final third of the psalm, we'll see that he makes personal application, and I hope we will also. The first book, Nature, serves as a testimony presented every day to everyone everywhere. The invisible things of the invisible God are made visible daily. Look out that window. Uh, You folks out there, sorry. Look out that window. It's saying something without words. In fact, in the material world, everything points beyond itself to something else, something more, including the incarnate flesh of Jesus. He came in the flesh, but he's also a pointer. Listen to Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So creation speaks of its creator and speaks to all humanity. God speaks through what he's made. And he never speaks in vain. More on that in a moment. So look at verse 1. The heavens declared the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, the heavens and the sky include not just the heavenly bodies, like the sun and the moon and the stars, but it includes the atmosphere and light and rain and dew, wind. All that stuff is included in the heavens and the sky. Verse 2. When verse 2 says that every day pours out speech, that word pours out means gush, like a fountain. The speech never ceases. This is a continual grace from God to us. Now, what do these heavens tell us? What do they proclaim? Without words, but with visuals, what are they testifying of? Let me give you a list of 14 things. Number one, brightness. God is bright. He's the creator who said, let there be light. It's a significant thread all through the Bible, from the very first chapter of Genesis all the way to the last chapter of Revelation. Light. Number two, it declares his breadth. Breadth. Worldwide, galaxy-wide, universe-wide, his span of presence and control. Listen to Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens 
with a span of his hand. What breadth? Number three, the heavens declare his immensity. Though he's not material, he's not spatial, he makes and sustains everywhere all that is material and spatial. He's immense. You can't go anywhere where he ain't. Number four, it reveals his power. To make everything and sustain everything and keep it in order from Adam to atoms, from Mars to stars, from lightning to the lightning bug, that takes a lot of power under control. Number five, it reveals his transcendence. Transcendence, he's high above. However distant, far away an object may be, he's farther yet. He's way out there. He's higher than the highest. He's deeper than the deepest. Number six, it reveals the heavens, the sky reveals his presence and his imminence. The sky reaches all of us. All right, right now, here, audience participation. Take a breath. Go ahead. Yeah, you just breathed in the sky. It's in you. He is very near. However close something is to you, he's closer still. He's closer to you than your skin. He's closer than the hydrogen and oxygen atoms that make up about 60% of your body in the form of water. He is closer to you than your thoughts. Seven, the heavens declare to us his dominion. The heavens have impact on the earth every day, every night. Gravity, magnetism, rays of all kinds. What goes on here on the earth is dependent upon what goes on in the heavens, at least in some significant measure. And you might think, yeah, 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 yeah. But the writer of this psalm, David, he didn't know about all this magnetism and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but he did know how to guard, guide ships with stars. Number eight, the heavens reveal his protection. Now today, we know that the atmosphere protects us from harmful rays and from meteors and the like. But even in biblical times, they knew that the sky protected them from drought by delivering to them the rain clouds that they needed. Number nine, the heavens declare his providence. And just for now, let me say that we'll see this played out in greater detail when we preach Psalm 104. Let me give you question number 27 from the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks, what do you understand by, not about, by, what do you understand by the providence of God? Here's the answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds the heaven and earth and all creatures, so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, <clears throat> food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Tenth thing that the heavens declare about God is his provision. The heavens provide for us food, light for work, heat, 
cooling, hydration. I was just reading an article this morning, providentially, how lightning, anybody ever seen lightning? Did you see some this week? Lightning transforms part of the atmosphere. You know, when you're breathing right now, you're breathing in a bunch of nitrogen. But that nitrogen doesn't nourish you. But when lightning strikes that nitrogen, it transforms it to a different kind of nitrogen that falls on the soil, comes up through the plants, and you eat it. What provision? Are you marveling yet at this God who reveals so much through the heavens and the sky? Number 11, he reveals kindness. His glory, the heavens declare his glory, not only glorifies himself, but it makes us happy. It gratifies us. I mean, when you walk out into a beautiful day, don't you go, wow, I feel pretty good. I do. Rainy days and Mondays do get me down a little bit, (laughs) even though I thank God for the rain. Number 12, the heavens declare his constancy. Day after day, night after night, season after season, year after year, what faithfulness, what steadfastness. Thirteen, the heavens declare his wisdom. To make all this complexity and all this variety and to have it integrated so that it works together in complementary ways, everything from the moon's influence on our tides, not only the tides of the ocean, but you know there's tides in the atmosphere, there are even tides in the soil doesn't move as much as the water moves. It moves just a little bit. But that's what triggers a lot of earthquakes is when that little shifting happens because of the moon and its influence on us. To organize all that from conception to gestation in the mother's womb. His coordinating the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. All of that coordination. The orderly laws that elegantly display mathematics. His wisdom in designing the interdependence of all these things, especially when it's obvious to us that multiple parts are needed in order for something to function. Like take in any creature the maleness and the femaleness. you got to have both if you're going to have the next generation. If you just have one, that's the last generation of that thing. Take the butterfly. Moves from an egg to a larva, to a pupa in the chrysalis, to the adult. If you don't have all four stages in the first generation, you don't have a second generation of butterflies. What wisdom. And that butterfly comes out of that chrysalis, and guess what dries its wings? The heavens, the sky, the atmosphere. Fourteen, what do the heavens declare? His worthiness of honor and glory. Who is like our God? So when you behold the sky, do you see any of those things? We cannot debate a person into beholding glory or seeing glory as glorious. Words won't do it any more than words can persuade a blind man of a gorgeous painting or a deaf person of a rhapsodic symphony 
or a person with COVID, the deliciousness of honey. That was my experience when I had COVID. I put some honey on toast and it just tasted like sandpaper. The God-given revelations of nature and Scripture are either tasted as glorious or not. The ability to see glory is called faith, and it's a gift. It has almost nothing to do with intelligence. That is, there's no contradiction between faith and reason, as though if you have one, you can't have the other. If you're a person of faith, well, you can't, you can't rely on reason. And if you're a reasonable person, you won't have faith. I'm tempted to say the word baloney there, but I, I guess I just did say baloney. <laughs> a person can not only have both faith and reason, we should all pursue both faith and reason. We should exercise our faculties of reason and exercise our faith. If I told you that I have a beautiful photo here in my notes and I explained it to you, that would not elicit your praise. You have to see it. Now let me give you four examples of persons who exercised both faith and reason. Robert Boyle, he was the chemist who discovered laws pertaining to volumes and pressures of gases, that is the atmosphere, the sky, the heavens. He was a pioneer of the modern experimental scientific method. Here's a man of reason, a man of science, and he said this, from a knowledge of his work we shall know him. Sounds like Psalm 19. Isaac Newton discovered the laws of motion, basic principles of physics, and he said this, Atheism is so senseless. When I look at the solar system, I see the earth at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amounts of heat and light. This did not happen by chance. In the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. This is a scientist talking. Johann Kepler discovered laws of planetary motion. He believed that scientists must guard against the propensity to, quote, glorify our own minds instead of giving God the glory. And he coined a phrase indicating that scientific discoveries were thinking God's thoughts after him. George Washington Carver. Anybody been to his museum down in Missouri? Yes, a few. It's a good stop, I think. He, I would say he's one of my heroes. George Washington Carver said this, Reading about nature is fine, but if a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, whoa, 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 that sounds like Psalm 19. Listen to the woods. They're speaking, apparently. If a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, he can learn more than what is in books, for they speak with the voice of God. He added, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. Let's move to verse 3 and 4. In the sky, we see that there's such a thing, this paradoxical thing of speechless speech. They're speaking to us, but they are not speech. Their words go to the end of the world, but they're not words. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, but it's not a voice. It's not verbal. And Paul agrees with the psalmist when he writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that are made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What can be known about God is clearly perceived in the things that are made, Paul says to us in that first chapter of Romans. Sin persists in resisting the God who reveals himself through the things that are made. Truth suppression is sin's stock in trade. Now, creation by itself does not convert the sinful heart, but God does hold the heart accountable for what is revealed through creation, namely God. Now, how does creation speak without words? Consider a couple of examples. What if I were to look at this young lady down here in the front row and do a... uh, I didn't say any words, but you got an idea, didn't you? I hope she got one, too. Wordless speech. Or what if you had satellite images that showed a buildup of weapons at the Ukrainian border? Might you draw any conclusions from those pictures that don't have any words? Or it's the middle of the day and the sky is black. Is that telling you something? God's glory is manifest in the things that he's made. It's obvious as the sun, according to this text, which is seen worldwide, daily, brilliant, unavoidable. In fact, of all the heavenly bodies, the sun is probably the most conspicuous to us. No wonder the psalmist refers to it. When glory is seen as glorious, the healthy soul erupts with awe, adoration, gratitude, delight, even hope. Day after day, night after night, back and forth, day, night, day, night, like Apple and IBM, just back and forth, back and forth between your two groups. Look at verse 5. It says that the sun is like a strong man running with joy. Many of you will remember the Academy Award winning movie Chariots of Fire, which was the story of Eric Little, the 
Olympian who said, When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Verse 6 says, Nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. So let's all humbly acknowledge with awe that every aspect of our physical lives is owing to the heat of the sun. Everything from oatmeal to chocolate to plastics to the light emanating from your device right there. It's all without the sun. We don't, we're not going to have any of that. The sun is a glorious handiwork of God according to this psalm. Now let me transition to the second part of this psalm, which is about the scriptures. Verses 1 through 6 are about wordless speech, but if you still want words, well, there are words. God gives us words. So here we go to verses uh, 7 through 9, where we see Jehovah is mentioned six times. In verse 7, when it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, that means it's unblemished. It's without defect. His law is without error or corruption, and it has the effect of reviving the soul. Have you ever felt like you needed a little jump start in the soul? The law of the Lord is the ticket. Testimony is sure. That means it's reliable. It makes wise so that we heed the warnings that we should heed. We reap the lasting rewards that are good for us to reap. Those who are humbly willing to be taught will gain insight into things hidden, things future, cause and effect relationships. They'll make accurate generalizations and observe principles. Notice in the next verse that the scriptures rejoice the heart, they enlighten the eyes, and jump down to verse 11, they warn and they reward. So the word of the Lord effectively accomplishes things. It doesn't just sit there like ink on a page. It has muscle, and it makes us accountable to him. Now, our earthly senses are temporal and dissipate. Um, the older I get, the more, you know, feeling tends to go away a little bit from your fingertips, just a little bit. You get a little harder of hearing. There's just some, some sensory things that kind of evaporate as you age. Uh, no sense being in denial about it. But spiritual senses are lasting. There's no danger of excessiveness. You can't have too much joy. You can't have too much Peace. Too much wisdom. Oh, you got too much wisdom. Act a little more stupid, would you? No. You can't have too much discernment. The Bible says these things are spiritually discerned. You can't have too much dependability, too much discretion, too much gratefulness, too much self control, too much virtue. If God animates the heart's meditations of Scripture and on nature, those spiritual qualities will blossom. Verse 8 says that his precepts, his principles and statutes are straight, smooth, upright, as opposed to crooked. They describe and they prescribe the kind of character, inwardly and outwardly, that would manifest Christian maturity. So the scriptures describe what a Christian should be like, will be like, and prescribe what we should go after, both. Still in verse 8, the enlightened eyes know what to do. They know what to avoid. It's like, consider driving blindfolded. I mean, you don't know what to miss. 
But if you have enlightened eyes, then you know what to steer clear of. And oh, the enjoyment missed by the blind and the deaf and the tasteless. Go to verse 9. The fear of the Lord has a cleansing, purging, correcting effect. That's what it, that word there, the um, uh, fear of the Lord is clean, actually is the fear of the Lord is cleansing. Fearing God has a cleansing effect in our lives. Verse 10. More desirable than gold and honey, which are very desirable things. Especially they were desirable, desirable in David's day. Then let's go to verse 11. What are the rewards? It says, in keeping them, there are rewards. What rewards? Well, I think he just listed a half a dozen of them up in verses 7 through 9. We'll have a revived soul. We'll have growth in wisdom. We'll have a rejoicing heart and enlightened eyes. We'll have cleansing that endures and true and righteous integrity, which, which is what's um, hidden in the word altogether. Integrity comes from the mathematical word integer, which is a whole number. His rules are whole. They're all of one piece, one fabric. And there are rewards not only after keeping his word, but in keeping them. Now we'll transition to the third section of this psalm. After pointing to the book of nature and to the book of scripture, the psalmist transitions in this third section to personal application. God help us. After considering the scriptures and being awakened, the psalmist considers his own sin. Verses 12 and 13 mention both unintentional sins and high-handed infractions. Remember, our hidden faults are not hidden to God. And what are hidden faults? Well, here's a few varieties of hidden faults. It could be something that I committed, but I've forgotten. Maybe I did it last week, last year, last decade, when I was a boy, and I've forgotten it. Or a hidden fault could be committed in thought, but not outwardly. It's hidden from you all, but I know what's going on. Or a hidden fault could be committed in private. I'm going to go into my basement. We don't have a basement currently, but that's just hypothetical. Or a hidden fault could be committed before knowing that it was sinful. This is the testimony of many people who come to Christ as adults, and they realize, oh, yikes, that stuff I was doing before that I gloried in? Oh, I am so sorry that I did that stuff. Okay, those are hidden faults that have been revealed. They've become known. And the Holy, script, the Holy Spirit can use Scripture to jar our consciences. And here's the very good news. The shed blood of Jesus can take our place and absorb the punishment that we deserve for our faults, hidden or intentional, the punishment we deserve, and declare us innocent. By the end of this psalm, the psalmist will be calling God his redeemer. He's aware he needs redemption. But redemption is available in this God. That's good news. Verse 13 refers to presumptuous sins, which are deliberate violations of conscience. Now, one might ask, what does it mean that the Scripture warns us? Let me give you just one example of warning. It's a very sobering example from Proverbs chapter 1. 
I'm going to read one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm going to read eight verses. Here we go. Because you have ignored all my counsel, there's a warning. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, and when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, ultimately. In verse 13, we see the phrase, Keep back your servant from these presumptuous sins, which implies that true repentance comes with an earnest desire to not relapse, to not return to the folly. Now, we customarily address God at the beginning of our prayers, like the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, blah, 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 blah. We start by addressing Him, our Father. But in this psalm, the psalmist addresses God at the end of his prayer. Looking at verse 14, remember that words come from meditations. So may the words of the mouth, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Words without heart are a sham. They're hypocritical. The words of our mouths should not be and must not be merely formal. You know, you can treat a parrot to say the Lord's Prayer. Here then, in closing, is application in five words. They all start with R. One, receive the word as from God. Receive it. Welcome it. Two, read the word you've received. Many of you have it on your device or in your lap or on your coffee table. Read it. Third, retain the word. Memorize it. Fourth, ruminate on the Word. Meditate on it. Think about it. Mull it over. And I find that the third R, retaining, helps me with the fourth R, the ruminating. And fifth, respond in worship and obedience. So we're going to respond right now. Let me pray. Father, would you so work that the words of our mouths now as we sing and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 
13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.